This conference will now be recorded. Welcome. This is the Tuesday, September 15th, 2015 Reading Odyssey Livy Call. We're going to be talking about the introduction and book 21. Uh, we've got a great group. This is our kickoff call. I'm going to say just a few words to set some context, and then we're going to jump right in. Um, I will. So one of the first things I want to say is that after tonight's call, I'm going to send an email out to everyone asking you to send an introduction of yourself out to the whole group. We, we won't do those on the call tonight because we, we have, you know, precious time to talk about Livy. But it's always great to see who people are. Again, some of you are longtime members of the Reading Odyssey. Some of you, this is your first call. One of you works as a federal public defender for death row inmates in uh, Arizona and Utah, which is amazing. Uh, others of you, you know, teach Latin. One of you is the president of a, we actually have two president slash CEOs on the call today. Um, and uh, it's a really, it's an interesting group. So I'm going to ask you to do those introductions to the whole group over email. So take a look at that and, and, and please do that. And put, put a little into it. Give, it. give us a sense of who you are, both your day, your day job, so to speak, and also what drives your interest in this. Um, I want to note that... Um, December 2016 is an important date. Um, that is the date of we, what we think the publication of the long-awaited landmark Caesar. Right. Very excited about this. Landmark Caesar will actually contain basically the Civil War and the um, and Got the it. Gaul writings of of Caesar. Um, Kurt Rothlob, who's a terrific Caesarian scholar at Brown, is editing it under Bob Strasser's direction. Uh, there's a number of great uh, scholars involved, and, and it's getting the full landmark treatment. Bill Swidlow and I are working on putting together a program to celebrate the launch of that new text. Of course, we'll have reading groups. We hope more than one. But we also plan to do some public events, some in-person events, some launch events, possibly New York, San Francisco, and maybe in more cities. Uh, some online lectures with some scholars. And I'm bringing this up for a couple of reasons, but the first and most important reason is if, if you want to volunteer with us and do some stuff online, help us with database outreach, research, social media, you name it, let me know. Uh, we'd, love to, we'd love to have your help. Um, all right. So, uh, what we're going to do tonight is, since it's the kickoff call, I'm going to give a very quick little summary of some key dates and other things that set the context, stuff that was mostly in our introduction. Um, and then we're going, and I'm going to call on Bill Swizlow to help me with that. And then, um, and then we're going to jump right into favorite passages. So this, we won't normally do this kind of a review. This is, we really want this to be a discussion, not. Uh, you know, sort of a, a lecture, but just to set some context, I'll just share a few things with you real quick, and then we'll jump into the discussion about the introduction um, and book 21. All right, so just a quick reminder, Livy, born around 64 BC, died around 12 AD. Uh, famous in his li lifetime, wrote 142 books <laughs> about the history of Rome. Only books 1 to 10 and 21 to 45 survived. Uh, pieces of the other books survive in, in other works, but uh, for the most part, that's what we've got. 
He was not a propagandist for Augustus, um, though, of course, he lived in the time of Augustus and the Civil Wars. He didn't really, uh, he questioned Julius Caesar and whether Rome would have been better off with or without him. So that's interesting to note. Um, so we're, this book we're reading, so-called Hannibal's War, is about the Second Punic War. Um, just a quick reminder, Rome and Carthage, Rome supposedly founded 1053. I mean, that's, you know, that's, as the story goes, Carthage around 814, again, supposedly, and supposedly Rome descended from Trojan War refugees and Carthage from Dido, a princess of Tyre in, in Phoenicia. Both had great geography. Uh, in 270 BC, Rome dominated peninsular Italy. Carthage was dominating Western Sicily and trading routes. Uh, the two cities shared a lot of features. They were republics, male-only citizens' assemblies, uh, set up in very similar ways. Interestingly, some of you who read Aristotle with us remember in the politics that Aristotle actually talked about Carthage. It was the only non-Greek state that he discussed. Mostly liked them. Uh, the first Punic War, the first war between Rome and Carthage was from 264 to 241. And in the introduction, it goes into more about how that first war started. Uh, Rome won that war. Carthage had to abandon Sicily and pay a lot of money. Um, the second uh, Punic War, which is our you know focus here, was from 218 to 201. Um, and I won't say too much about that because, of course, we're going to read about that. Um, and uh, it's just interesting to note that the causes of the war, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have a conversation over the next, you know, several months as we, as we read Libby and reflect on this, but uh, the, the editor does a good job for us um, in laying out a range of potential causes. Uh, there was disagreement at the time, contemporaries of Libby, um, I mean, at the time, a couple hundred years after that war, as they were writing in the um, new emperor empire period. Um, and there are also disagreements today among uh, modern uh, historians about what, what drove this. But this is, this is what we're going to be talking about, right? The Second Punic War, 218 to 201. We'll also be talking a lot about Lizzie. Bill, can you just tell us a little bit about you know, just summarize for us the two the two armies, if you will. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm not enough of a of a uh, military scholar to, to to really be able to comment much on the you know tactical arrays of these armies. Um, the introduction does talk a little bit about the the um, you know that they were basically a combination of. Uh, uh, you know, large numbers of infantry and then, you know, smaller but crucial cavalry uh, attached to that. You know, it sounds like that that the, the Roman uh, legions were, were not yet as fully developed at this period as, as they became later. But there were, there were a couple of things that I think are interesting to note. Um, one is that it sounds like neither army was a mercenary-based army. That the Roman army was had a lot of Romans in it, as well as um, uh, citizens Italian. from allied yeah. Italian and Latin states. Um, and the and the the the, the Hannibal's army um, was mostly from North Africa and Spain, although Carthage itself apparently was really only represented as the senior officers. Um, but, 
Both, and then Hannibal added uh, disgruntled or conquered allies of Rome as he moved across Europe. But I found that interesting that neither, you know, if it, so they were largely either conscripted from, you know, citizens or at least territorial citizens or uh, or professional soldiers. But I think the the uh, it seems to me that the the biggest distinction that that um, the editor calls out, and, and, and I think it's apparent when you read in the reading and Livy himself, is that the Roman army was being led by politicians and the Carthaginian army was being led by a someone who was primarily a soldier. Um, and I think, it, you know, I think Livy draws that out a lot. I mean, he, he seems to have a fair amount of contempt for the at least in this era, the, in this first sort of round of the war for the Roman leadership uh, as being highly political in their views. It was also interesting that um, if you read the introduction that um, the Roman army was not terribly sophisticated because it really was not the kind of professional army it became later. That, you know, the editor says that complex maneuvers and specialized military devices were unusual in a Roman army, even though it could be flexible, um, but it was not. It was it was probably more based on on masses than it was on sophistication. The other interesting thing that that I pulled out of there was that the Hannibal's army was the editor notes was comprised of of troops from many different countries, which at that time meant that these these soldiers were armed differently. That there wasn't a consistent um, sort of armament or and therefore there wasn't the total consistency of tactics that Hannibal was capable of doing that he had to be very flexible because the troops were equipped by their national lines and they literally had different weapons depending on where they came from and so he had to factor that in uh, but it's clear that he's much more tactically sophisticated than most of the Roman uh, officers that he and generals that he went up against but that's you know, and the, the the relatively short answer of, of the description of these two armies. Great. Thank you, Bill. Okay. Yeah. So again, in future calls, we won't necessarily have this kind of summary piece at the beginning. So we really emphasize conversation among the group. And so what I want to do now is I just want to note one of the questions, of course, that I encourage you, if you don't already have, to consistently ask yourself is why do we read these texts? Um, and everyone, of course, has a different answer. I'll just briefly share with you mine, and then we can move into the favorite passages. Um, there, there really are two main reasons that I, I love these texts. One, frankly, I find it immensely pleasurable. Um, the texts that we've read from Homer, Herodotus, Thucydides, through Aristotle, though not necessarily his logic, but um, um, most of these texts are just terrific texts, surprisingly accessible, in translation, uh, still reflecting, I think, some of the, the beauty of the language. Um, the second reason is perspective. Uh, I love the experience of understanding a world that is different from our own. Um, and while there are similarities, and we will certainly talk about that, psychology hasn't changed a whole lot, that's clear. Um, th their world is very different from ours in many, many ways. And um, I find that immensely helpful. 
to practice the art of shifting perspective. I find that immensely useful, frankly, in my day job. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that question, but let's now talk a little bit about, we always like to begin these, each of these calls with, with um, favorite passages. It usually ends up leading us into some very interesting discussions. So um, Sean, can I, can I call on you to, to share uh, a favorite passage from book 21? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, these, these headphones are a little sketchy. Um, I actually didn't have a favorite passage, and as I chimed in, you guys were discussing it, that the writing style was a little more um, just factual than what yeah. we've read before. Uh, but the things that did mark, you know, I was just, uh, maybe this sounds ridiculous, but I'm still struck by the notion of basically building a carport to then tear away at, at the walls of uh, of cities. And um, yeah, so just, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the town, Sagantum? Um, yeah. Sagantum. Um, Saguntum. Yeah, yeah. That, that was the part that was most interesting to me in this, yeah, because it was fairly direct, but just the, uh, the techniques of, you know, sending guys in with pickaxes to, uh, to tear apart <laughs> a wall was what, uh, what struck me as the most interesting part. Uh-huh. That gave you an idea for for your future siege, perhaps of <laughs> yeah. yeah of a well, neighboring city there in Ohio. Being struck by the complexity of communication, right? And yes. the notion yes. of sending a, a dude from Rome to go, uh, you know, into Spain, and I have no idea if that was a week or if that was, you know, two or three weeks, or whatever. Months. But yeah, the notion that. Uh, you send a guy and you don't even know if he ever got there, right? Until he until he <laughs> right. gets back and, and just the latency in it, you know, and, and the opportunity for someone who wants to drive the war like Hannibal did to really get ahead of his enemy because you know, it takes them a while to figure out that they're actually at war. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Cool. All right. Well let me uh, Teresa, you're um is it Teresa or Teresa, by the way? It's Therese. Okay, Therese, you're a new reader. I, I really welcome. Thank you for joining us. Do you have Thank a you. favorite passage or something you'd like to share with us here? I had a couple, but can I ask a question first? Yeah, sure. Um, I was really curious about language. I had to look up what language the Carthaginian spoke, and I learned it was a Punic Phoenician Berber language. And presumably the Romans spoke Latin, but I mean, how did they all, there's nothing in, in the text that talks about translators or how did they communicate? Did they have a common language? That's a great question. Let me ask Andre and Michael if they have thoughts on that. Yeah, um, it is a great question and it's very difficult to find, this is Andre, um, it's very difficult to find out a lot about the Carthaginian culture uh, beyond what we have in, in a lot of Roman writings. But um, I'm I'm pretty sure they had translators, which is kind of interesting. And there was a lot of trade between these two empires or, or countries, you know, before the wars. So there was some exchange, I believe, length of language and, and, and culture to some extent. Um, and that's about all I know. Would they focus There's a number of allusions. I thought it was in the, I read a number of different things. I can't remember exactly where I pulled it of Hannibal being a decent speaker of Greek, and certainly oh, yeah. very many of the educated yeah. Romans would have been Greek speakers. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, perhaps some conjecture. I, I wouldn't be shocked if very much of that, that was, was a lingua franca. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Did someone else want to jump in and add to that? Okay. Okay, so Therese, thank you for that question. And by the way, oh, I, sure. I will I will also happily reach out to Paul, Paul Cartledge. Paul is a professor at Cambridge University who's widely recognized as one of the, the great living classicists today. And he's always very helpful. He's on our board and generous with his time. I will share this question and see if he can add anything more to the answer and, and share it back in our next call. Thank you. That's amazing. Um, so I, I was well. really excited about a lot. Oh, was someone trying to talk? I'm sorry. I was just going to say you should ask about the goals as well and what, you know, how do they communicate with the goals since they both spoke to them uh, in addition. Mm-hmm. How do yeah. they communicate? Frank, say that again. With the, with the, with the Gallic people. Oh, with the, the Gauls. Romans yes, and yes. The right, right, right. So what, what do they speak? Were they Greek right. speakers or was there another language there? Right. There was yeah, a whole bunch that, of languages. Yeah. yeah, since there were so many Gallic um, dialects and languages, I think Greek was, you know, as was said before, Greek was a, a very common uh, lingua franca there. That's, that's, that's in Caesar, too. So. That's yeah. Good. Okay. Cool. All right, Therese, go ahead. Um, so, so mine's probably a little bit sophomoric, but um, I was completely fascinated by Hannibal's use of elephants. And so I was really taken... Um, first of all, by his tactics, which were incredible, but the element of surprise, for example, um, in chapter five, when he was um, attacking, and I'm not sure how to pronounce it, the Vakai, I think, who were joined by the Alcatas and the Carpatani, and when he was yep. crossing the river uh, Tagus and used his elephants as part of that tactical attack, I just was like, wow, that must have been so frightening for those people. Um, and then also um, the the crossing of the Alps to me was just an amazing feat, especially with pack animals and elephants and the fact that on the descent they yeah. had to build this road out of, you know, uh, wood and, and rock. I just thought it was absolutely incredible. So those were, I mean, there were several things I was excited about, but I don't want to hog all the time. But those were a couple <laughs> of things that <laughs> I was really just like, it was like, it, seriously, just like a very exciting, um, you know, I don't know. I was very surprised that Libby was so exciting, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Therese, you, I think everyone's excited by the elephants, including, of course, the Romans, who were excited with a little fear mixed in. But, um <laughs> You know, if if you ask a, if you ask us down the street, walk down the street and ask somebody what they what they've heard of in history, you know, chances are Caesar will be named and possibly Hannibal's elephants. People love this thing about Hannibal. So, uh, and I bet everyone on the and the crossing of the Alps, of course, was considered to be remarkable. Um, that's great. Cool. All right. Well, let's keep let's keep going. This is a, also such a terrific way to learn who people are. Um, Mike, let me call on you uh, to share with us. And Mike, so again, we have a mix of people with different backgrounds on this call. Mike is one of the readers who can read the original text in Latin, uh, as is Andre. And I think, Mike, you were telling me, are you reading this in translation and in Latin at the same time? Um, I mean, certainly not at 100% nearly, but checking key passages. So, uh, yeah. I mean, the theme I, I thought was really interesting, and, and the footnotes picked up on this, was the bookend structure and the speeches between Scipio and Hannibal. 
Yeah. And not to read too much into the, the way they talk, but the scene with the supernatural there where you have that reliance on the immortals and like one of the things I would almost even take issue with in the translation where they say, if the fortune, if your fortunes waver, something bad will happen. Both of them actually say fortune, you know, capital F in the Latin editions that we read, you know, if, if it is given to you by fortune that this is going to go well, we're going to be okay. If not, we're going to cease to exist. And he paints uh. this picture where to both armies, they're told at the end of each speech, there's nothing, there's nowhere for you to retreat. You're either going to win or we are all, including our families going to die. <laughs> and so there's this sense that it yeah. is like the people in Hannibal's little circle that he creates a fight to the death between these two armies. Yeah. And when you think about the foreshadowing that happens, you carry that forward to the end of book 21. And I think if you think about someone sitting in a library and reading that, right, the books are these physical scrolls. You're getting to the end of the scroll. You know what's going to happen if you're a reader, right? You know Hannibal comes in and basically kills everybody. And you're yeah. almost at the end of the scroll. And one of the last things you read is this great passage where all these things start to go wrong, right? Like a freeborn six-month-old child started shouting triumph. The uh, <laughs> ox of its own accord climbed a third quarter building. I mean, all these supernatural things start happening, <laughs> almost like in Macbeth or something, when the horses start eating each other before everything goes crazy. Yeah. Um, it sense you get the sense that everything's in the hands of fortune and that fortune's really not looking very favorably on Rome. Yeah. Um, and I, I thought that was like, if you try to get away from the dry historian, he's really painting a very foreboding sort of Darth Vader music kind of picture here for what's about <laughs> to happen. <laughs> Darth Vader music. I love it. Great. Well, thank you, Mike. And it's, it's a great, I, I love that you can share with us, um, some of these key passage translations. I think that really adds to all of our uh, experience of the reading. And so um, thank you for sharing that as well as the um, the question about fortunes. And I know that the editor has something to say about these speeches, and it reminds me a little bit about the speeches in Thucydides. Some of us read Thucydides, who's a Greek historian writing about the wars between Athens and Sparta. And the speeches are remarkable, but they're pretty much probably written by Thucydides, although we hope reflective at least of some of what was said. Um, all right, so let's keep, let's keep going. Um, uh, Nan, how about you? What, you know, would you like to remark on what's been said or uh, a favorite passage or theme well, you'd like to share? Yeah, I liked the um, two kind of rousing the Army's morale speeches between um, Scipio and Hannibal, and yeah, yeah Scipio is reminding me of yeah. of a football pep talk. It's like, hey, we've <laughs> beaten them before, you know, but we're not just playing for the pride of Spartan. Uh, we're not just fighting for <laughs> Sardinia and Sicily now. We're fighting for all of Rome, and it just seemed like this big rah rah football pep talk. Um, yeah. And then Hannibal's is like, hey, we got the Alps behind us. We got seas on either side of us, and we have no boats. Like we're, we're we gotta fight. We have no other choice. Like we're dead otherwise. And I, I just yeah. kind of liked the contrast between the two speeches. I'm not sure yeah. which one is better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. Uh, the, those are. I'm glad both you and Mike have remarked on the speeches between Scipio and Hannibal. Did Did anyone else, by the way, mark that out as a favorite passage or section? I I did. This is a gem, and I I. I 
I agree with uh, what was said there. I, what, what struck me is, um, if I could jump in a little bit here. Please do, yeah. Is that um, in the introduction, they say that Livy uh, takes care to give all his leading characters and some minor ones carefully crafted orations. Speeches give emotional depth to a situation. Illustrate a person's character or dramatize the pros and cons in a difficult debate, which actually is, is very interesting because it is very fact-based, a lot of this. But as soon as you get to that battle there, um, you do have the, the, the two different motivational speakers. <laughs> you, have, you, have, <laughs> you, have, you have Scipio, who I'm like, and I'm struggling with, I might be mispronouncing some of this stuff. Don't worry who in some ways, at least in my mind, thinking. presented almost yeah. kind of a lawyerly case of why they should win. You know, they they're they're better, they're 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 braver, they're they're they 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 got everything stacked against them. Whereas Hannibal was much more passionate. I mean, what he says here in this line that I've underlined is and so my eyes page. Have... Let's look at the page and oh, uh, page, page forty four. It's uh yep. yeah. So it's chapter I guess it's chapter forty four or section forty four. He says, Wherever yeah. my eyes have fallen, all I can see is courage and strength. A veteran infantry, cavalry, with and without bridles, drawn from tribes of noble spirit. You are allies loyal and brave, and you Carthaginians, who will not only fight for your country, but fight also with righteous indignation. And I thought that was uh, that was quite interesting because he's he's appealing rather than to their spirit of who they are as men and soldiers and and warriors, as opposed to you know do it for uh, the good of um, you know of the country. Um, yeah. And wh- one other thing I just wanted to remark on is, uh, well, actually two short things, but um, the reason I'm interested in this is something I, it's because I know nothing about all this stuff, you know? I think the only familiarity I have with this is uh, anecdotally, and uh, and uh, so it was, it was very interesting uh, to, to uh, learn about. And I'm also wondering yeah. if this is the first war involving the world's superpowers. I mean, certainly in, in the introduction, he says, I'm going to provide an account of the most momentous war, war ever yeah. fought. I was also struck yeah. by the sizes of the armies. <laughs> if these numbers are correct, I mean, it's 80 and 100,000 people and the casualties are 6,000 at a time. Um, the amount of, 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 of manpower and, and carnage was, was pretty striking, I thought. Yes. So, Jim, let me, let me build on a couple of things you're saying here and invite others to, to join me. First, you, you, you referenced the beginning of Livy. Mm-hmm. Um, which is actually one of my favorite passages because what what's happening there is Livy is very self-consciously imitating uh, Herodotus and Homer who, so Herodotus, when he writes his history, so Herodotus really invents the genre of history. Um, and he's writing in during the golden age of Athens about the wars between um, uh, Persia and Greece, right? And he says, Herodotus basically says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write this to to record the, the great achievements of of these men, of these human beings, uh, in both the Greeks and the Persians. Um, and uh, and Livy is reflecting on that, and he's self-consciously imita- he's self-consciously telling us this is even more important than Herodotus and Thucydides. These these were these were two big superpowers. Mm. Now you, we could argue, you know, whether that's true or not. Certainly, when per- Persia was a superpower, the Greeks were disorganized. And um, just a quick aside, we're we're obviously focused on Rome right now, but 
But it's important to remember or to learn that ancient Greece was not a single city or country in any sense or empire like Persia. It was a loose confederation of city-states that ranged from what is today Western Turkey all the way to uh, France. Marseille was founded by Greeks and was a Greek-speaking colony. Um, and so when the Persians invaded Greece, uh, a number of Greek cities got on board with the Persians, but uh, several did not, including, of course, Athens and Sparta, who worked together along with other cities to defeat the Persians, which was remarkable because the Greeks were very underdeveloped and it presaged the Greek, uh, the golden age of Athens, actually. Um, but that's what Livy is, 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 he is, he is telling us, the, 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 the Roman reader, that this is even more important than those Greeks, like Herodotus and Thucydides. This is an even more important history and these, and these, that, so that's part of what's going on there. Um, he's, so this is, he's uh, very, yeah. Sorry, if I can jump in on that, though. Yeah. I read it differently. I read it kind of like, you know, I'm going to tell you this is the most important war ever. But then, of course, I'd say that because every one of us who writes a history deaths. So I'm just <laughs> curious if anybody else read it that way. Yeah, because, yeah, I, I guess I'm alone in this one. That's Sean. Right? Yeah. yeah. Could I just uh, jump in for a sec? Yeah, um, who is that? This is Ed. Ed. Okay, great. Ed, please do jump um, in. One of the things that struck me just, you know, in the last discussion about the Persians was something that we, I think, very often forget is the sheer size of the Persian Empire at the time yeah. of their incursion west. I mean, when you consider that they had conquered Egypt through the Indus, I mean, that's right. an enormous landmass encompassing, I can't even put a number on how many cultures. Right. Um, you know, and Herodotus, when he goes into enumerating the battle, the, you know, the, the battle arrays of the various armies, lists the various peoples who were present in the lines. It's including what they were wearing and the weapons they were using, right? Yeah, so it, it, it's yeah. phenomenal that you know that many peoples were gathered under one yoke, if you will. Um, yeah. Number one, and number two, when you think about the logistical requirements of putting that many people in one place and then maintaining them, even going back to Livy, where, and I think that, you know, the numbers of 100,000 troops is probably... Maybe exaggerated. Yeah, right. probably exaggerated. But if yeah. you've ever been in even a college football stadium with 100,000 seats and imagine feeding that many combatants, <laughs> you know, say males, n Excluding the hangers-on, the camp followers, and all the rest. I mean, disposing of waste, providing right. food, fresh water. Yeah, it's an enormous undertaking. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I'm Harry. I'd like to jump in on that point. Please um, do, Harry. My background, I, part of my background, is I, uh, I served in the army for 27 years, and ah. when I read this, when I read this, one of the things that fascinated me was. I think a lot of people read the tactics, and, and that's that's very interesting. But what drives a lot of the decisions is is just what was just said. It's it's the logistics of this. How do you get all these people and these elephants from point A to point B, and how do you feed them? And then when he talks about all these weather problems, and if you've ever been to the Alps in northern Italy, I, I mean the weather can be really really horrendous. And, and if you're traveling with basically what's on your back and a few pack animals, 
um, that is a monstrous logistical challenge. Yeah, because the challenge is not simply to get from point A to point B. The challenge is to get from A to B in condition to fight a battle to the death. Exactly. The Survival is like, you know, that's barely a prerequisite. Right, it's more than just survival. You're, you're exactly yeah. right. And Harry, and, and, can you share with us what did you do in the army? Were you in logistics by chance, or what were you doing? No, I, um, I was in the Signal Corps, and I did air defense, um, a lot of air defense, and I did some joint staff planning, yeah, and uh, and, and and like that. So, but there's an old saw that basically um, amateurs talk about. Log- uh, tactics for professionals talk logistics because logistics <laughs> drives most of what you do or can't do and 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 uh, you know at the, near the end of the chapter there's some decisions made to attack some cities and some depots that had that had supplies i mean they had right. to do that right. they absolutely had to do that so there's that's so important it's very interesting to read this so, Harry, yeah. both for you and Ed, and I think for all of us, another question I'm going to ask Paul and Mike and Andre, you may have more to say about this or other sources to go to, is what what more do we know about the logistics in the in the Second Punic War um, that maybe Livy doesn't cover? What what do we know about, you know, how these how these armies actually managed? And you're right, Harry, at the end of the chapter, we do Livy does talk about you know, going to some supply, getting some supplies. Um, but well, without question, one, one thing I, I think is interesting is when Hannibal's trying to cobble together this uh, this army uh, that consists of a lot of different tribes and factions, yeah. he has to be careful that when he goes into those areas that his army doesn't just denude the whole area of everything that's edible. That That's hard. I mean, yeah. if you got take this many people across country, they're just going to leave a, a path of nothing in their, in their path. They'll take, they'll consume everything in their path. So if you're trying to not alienate the locals, that that's quite a tightrope to walk. Right. Oh. Yeah. Right. I, I want to, I want to, yeah. okay. There's a couple of people speaking. I hear Andre and I'll let me have you go next, but who was the other voice that I heard there? Uh, that was Ed again, jumping in on the logistics thing. I think the, uh, probably a good author to look at is Martin Van Creffeld, yep. who's okay. done quite a bit of work on logistics in uh, the earlier, well, covering the entire age Great. of history, but, you know, 2000 forward. So okay. Great. to be Andre. What, would, what did you want very, to do? Very perceptive writer, and he draws a lot of historical analysis um, regarding what Van Creffeld does, uh, regarding all the way back to Alexander, the Macedonians. Yeah. Great. Great. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks for uh, bringing that up. I, I was thinking about this with Herodotus, too, and we always thought the numbers were very large, but... Now that I'm thinking about it and what I hear from you is that there was a lot of support. Um, I mean, even well, even in Vietnam, every frontline soldier had at least eight other people in the rear, like support or in some way supporting that soldier. And that's the American army, right? So, but, but if you read, you know, we're reading Caesar right now in book one and the whole Helvetian population moves from point A to point B. It's 450,000 people. And, you know, a lot of times Caesar just counts them, 
and doesn't really say, oh, well, half of them were males and half of those are fighters. No, it just kind of lumps them all together because they're all helping the whole, you know, the whole mission. So it started hey, to make Andre, me think you, that, that these numbers say, are not really exaggerated, but they may be including a lot of non-combatants or support people. Yeah. Andre, when you say you're reading Caesar, do you mean that's what you're doing at school? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah. yeah. All right, good. So... Uh, Good, good point. Yeah, Andre just, also, by the I way, want, served in the army. I'll just note. Yes, who? I want to call on a couple of people we haven't heard from yet. Is there a voice coming up now that we haven't heard from yet? Yeah, Phil. This, this is Frank. I just want to maybe bring the conversation in a different direction. Great. You know, Libby's trying to write a piece of literature, and one of the things that I thought was rather interesting was at the very beginning of the book, um, I guess paragraph yeah. uh, four, chapter, you know, sub chapter four. Yeah, and you start reading the beginning of it, and he starts, you know, singing the praises of how they wanted to raise Hannibal a certain way, and how, you know, this, this, the powers that be in, in Carthage got their way. And they start singing Hannibal's praises, you know, uh, on, I guess, page 26, reckless and courting danger, can endure, you know, indefatigable physically and mentally, can endure heat and cold, time for waking, and was determined not by daylight, but what he had left to do. And so you say, well, this is a really great guy. But then you realize, well, wait, a Roman writing this book. And what I thought was really interesting is toward the end of that last paragraph on page 26 before we get to chapter 5, so much of his virtues is false. Exactly. Inhuman cruelty, more than punitive uh, <laughs> preference, propriety, disregard for truth, honor, and religion. No, it's just basically he's a terrible guy. So he's setting us up, you know, from the very beginning to say, animal's a creep. He's an untrustworthy, terrible guy. So let's look at him from that point of view as we look at what he does through this story. And I think from the very beginning, you know, Libby sets him up as, as, as a bad guy. And, you know, and I think it's challenged to kind of look at his actions through that, through that prism. And I thought that might be something that's worth discussing a little bit. How, how is that really portrayed? Right. I completely agree. I found Libby very biased, if you will, but understandably so. I mean, he has a perspective. This is Ed speaking again. Sorry, I'm warning in. Um, but he's writing from a perspective. And he makes no bones about it. Yes, yeah, so you can argue that, like, Herodotus, again, for those of you who had not read Herodotus, don't mean to spend so much time there, but maybe it's helpful to get a little context. So Herodotus um, was himself a a Greek, although born in a Greek city off in Turkey. And um, the Greeks, many of them were mad at him because he wouldn't paint the Persians as all terrible. You know, he, he wanted to understand them. And it's a bit more, frankly, balanced than I think we find Livy here. And, um, you know, I, I like the history, but I would prefer to see... Um, I would find it, frankly, more compelling if you weren't so so biased. <laughs> um, I, have, I have one question about the uh, the book. Was the book commissioned, or why was the why was the book no. written? Was this his role? Was this Libby's role in some sort of official? No. Capacity? So yeah, and who's that asking? Oh, uh, this is Jim. Jim. Okay, Jim. Okay, good. So it was the book was not commissioned, as we understand. And he, he, again, he wrote a hundred and what was it, a hundred and forty-one books, 142 books about the history of Rome. He was a wealthy man who, who wanted to write this history. And I think wanted to try to put himself on the same stage 
um, as the great Greek historians like uh, Herodotus and Thucydides. Uh, he was not, interestingly, uh, uh, Jim, a propagandist for Augustus Caesar. Um, you know, he he seemed to question whether whether the Augustus's stepfather Julius Caesar, whether it, the Rome would have been better off with or without Caesar. He was willing to ask that question, uh, and Augustus sort of tolerated him. But no, this was not commissioned. Um, Though I think he knew his audience, the Roman people, of course, the Roman literate, educated, wealthy people. And he, um, I think he also probably believed to some degree that the Romans were better, more moral, et cetera. Um, it, let, me, let me jump in. If I could offer you, just not, real quick a, a contrasting thought on the notion of, of, of that interpretation of Hannibal, though. I, I don't think if you analogize yeah. it to Tolkien or something that this is some mindless orc. You know, like, like he's definitely hated. He's definitely yeah. the boogeyman. I mean, Hannibal really would yeah. have been like the Hitler in yeah. Libby's time if Hitler had come to the United States and destroyed everything in our parlance uh, <laughs> before he was done. Like, it really would be right. horrifying to say his name. But that said, when they go back go back to the speeches again, where there's really going to be a spotlight on their characters, Scipio gives a speech, and he gave some words. And the first paragraph after, it says, Hannibal believing that you know, works were greater than words, and rebus prius quam verbis, things rather than words. And there's this very aged Greek notion of both in word and in deed, lago to cargo. Like, like there's this very revered notion of those who can both do and say. And, but then he also applies it in a really heinous way. He gets everybody into a circle, makes them fight to the death, and then gives a speech. But this notion of both in word and in deed would have really contrasted against what Scipio was doing. I think somebody said it was lawyeristic. Um, it, I think there's a lot of admiration, but, but certainly is, is horrified by the guy. Yes. Yeah, and that's fair. I appreciate you making that point and also bringing us back to the text. Mike, thank you. Um, good. Well, Hannah, you, we haven't make heard your voice. About... Just hold on. Hi, Let we... me call on Hannah for a moment to, to, to share yeah, a thought. Yeah. I was just going to say... Um, one that I found was really striking was in chapter 21, there's this yep. part where Hannibal goes back to New Carthage for the winter. And he did what just I thought a second. Was... Let's, let's all go to the, can you tell us the page number? Uh, page number 21, 21 chapter 21 yep. also. Okay. Um, it's at the bottom. Okay. So he, he goes to, he goes to New Carthage to spend the winter there until he can start fighting again in the spring. And it, this was just such a savvy uh, HR move on his part. He <laughs> says to his troops, you know, I think that you should all regroup and go home to your families because I know how much you love them, which really means I don't want to have to feed you over the winter. So please go <laughs> feed yourselves and come back in the springtime ready to fight. And they're all really happy, which is just another example of. Are you there? Hannah? Are other people on the line? Oh, I'm here. Okay. Yeah. Looks like we might have lost Hannah. I thought she was making a great point there. Let's see if she calls back in. Um, Let me call on another person that we haven't. Josh Kirshner, can you jump in? I know you had to leave earlier. I don't know if you're still with us. Uh, I'm still here. I'm really trying to get my grade up to a B minus. Okay. Um, there's, there's one, just, it's a very short piece. Um, oh, it's on page 19 in the book. 
this is when Quintus Fabius is going down to um, the Carthaginians, uh, sorry, yeah. um, to try to convince them what a you know try to repress them. Either you're you're sort of with uh, you're going to disavow Hannibal, you're going to go to uh, war with Rome. And there's there's a one paragraph there in the middle of page 19 where he uh, this is Quintus uh, Fabius the the emissary from Rome says that. Um, at this, the Roman gathered his toga into a fold and said, here we bring you war and peace. Take whichever you please. And yeah. then a shout, no less defiant, came back. And they said, well, you can give whichever you please. It's like, we're not going to make the decision for you, Rome. You want to go to war, it's your choice. So then he shakes the fold and says, you know, in that case, you get war. I just, I just like that little exchange where, you know, if this is going to go to war, it's going to be Rome's decision to do it. And I found that so remarkable that a Roman would stand in the Carthaginian Senate, right? I mean, can you imagine, like, we go to war against Germany in World War II, and Eisenhower, excuse me, um, Roosevelt is in Berlin <laughs> with the Germans. I mean, obviously, we, have di- we had diplomats in Berlin, but, and, and I guess that's a example of this but it, it just it seems so remarkable that he's on the floor of the senate in carthage um and this discussion happens I, i'm part I, I love that passage josh i'm glad you brought it up did you want to say more about that i no, i didn't have a lot more to say about that it, yeah. it was just to me it was a, i mean who knows if that exchange was real or not but um yeah. and i think it was, i just like the way that the you know, yeah. Yeah, one, you know, Libby obviously wants to blame this whole thing on Hannibal. Um, but at the same time here is really the Romans are ultimately going to make the decision about whether or not they're going to go to war. Yeah. To that point, yeah. could I interject? This is Ed again. Sure. Uh, I'm wondering whether or not there's any evidence outside of Libby, because I haven't found it in Libby, um, that the Roman shilly shallying was almost by design to allow the sack of Sargentum to become a causus belli. Uh-huh. If that makes any sense. In other words, they weren't formal allies. Uh-huh. They were sort of protectorate, maybe. They were yeah. wealthy, but they weren't Roman. So if the Romans kept them and the Carthaginians didn't attack, fine. If they did attack, oh, look, they're giving us an excuse for a war. Hmm. Libby points the editor excuse me points out in the introduction that he thinks the Romans were somewhat distracted by the other some of the other wars they were fighting and some of the stuff they were doing across the Adriatic Um, this is certainly a question I can ask Paul Carlage again if what what we may know outside of Libby and whether as you said Sargentum was really essentially they set that up as a cause of Belli yeah, let me note that. Okay, so let me call on a couple of other people. Thank you. Hey, hey um, uh, Bruce, real yeah. quick, as an answer to that, yep. uh, Polybius corroborates what Livy's saying. Um, he, he says most of his contemporary sources have the first cause of the Caesar Sagutum and the second by the crossing of the river, and I agree with these sources. So there's certainly no discord between Livy and Polybius. Okay, great. That's helpful. Thank you, Mike. Um, great. Let's see. Who else have we not heard from? Uh, uh, and, and by the way, Hannah, are you back on with us? You were, hey, you were sharing... yeah, I don't know what happened there. Okay. So you were sharing such a great point of view. You were, you were saying that it was a savvy HR move 
<laughs> to send these soldiers back to their families. Did you want to say more about that? Yeah, no, I was just, I was impressed because this is, someone said this, probably you at the beginning, that there's such a, um, we don't realize how much we have in common with these these ancient peoples. And it's true because yeah. this is exactly the kind of thing that a, you know, a CEO would do today if, if he were, you know, getting good advice. And here, this is thousands of years ago, and all of the same dynamics are in play. Yeah. Not, not only are you suggesting, I think, that he saved some money on food, but it also was a great cultural move in terms of moralizing his soldiers, right, to have them yeah, spend some time right. with their family before they, they trek across. <laughs> well, he was, uh, he was able to make them feel, presumably, that he cared about them and their feelings. Yeah. And then he, he empathized with, you know, they're missing their loved ones because yeah. they were on these campaigns and they just never came back for months or years at a time. Um, and yeah. that may or may not have been true, but it also achieved a bunch of his own objectives. So everybody's yeah. happy and he doesn't have to feed this army over the winter. Well, yeah. in that regard, this is Bill. Hannibal also knew when to spend money. In, in, in toward the end, at the beginning of Chapter 55, it, 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 it's before the just before the battle where the Romans have had some victories, but have, you know, have basically tired themselves out. Hannibal, yeah. you know, it says Hannibal's men had lit fires before their tents. Oil had been distributed for soft up their limbs. They had taken a leisurely meal. So Hannibal also knew that, that <laughs> when to treat the employees well, that, you know, <laughs> let them relax, let them have a good time. And as opposed to the Romans who were freezing and hungry and numb and tired, you know, his soldiers yeah. were, were in great shape. And, you know, the, with the ping pong and, the, you know, the, the free uh, dessert. The foosball. <laughs> the foosball. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, very, uh, you know, and, and, and clearly Livy is saying that's, that's, you know, one of the distinguishing features here, you know, the way Hannibal knew how to treat his men and the Romans were right. pretty clueless. I mean, the one thing I, I, I mean, Livy seems fairly contemptuous of at least this generation of Roman leaders. I think I'm assuming when we get to Africanus, he, he, uh, his sympathies may be a little stronger, but he does clearly doesn't have much use for, uh, certainly not Sempronius, the, 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 you know, yeah. the, the crazier of the councils, but generally his tone is very, Livy's tone, I find very, often very sarcastic in, in many areas, uh, many parts of the book, and, you know, somewhat contemptuous of a lot of the, the people he's writing about, the leaders anyways. Yeah, that's There's a good point. point. This is Harry. The point you made is, is just now is really good, and that is the, that Hannibal was a leader, a military leader who was a professional that understood soldiers. So he understood that he had to take care of his soldiers if they were going to win. If they were going yeah. to, in those weather conditions, whereas the point the gentleman made earlier that the the Ro the Romans were commanded by really kind of politicians, yeah, that was Bill who made that point. Connected, Harry, they weren't connected so much to yeah. the soldiers, so it it's a little bit of neglect, a little bit of not understanding what they're dealing with, and it's amateurs, yeah. amateurs going up against a professional. And Hannibal had lived amongst the soldiers as a soldier since boyhood. Yes, exactly. That's important. Scott Thompson, what did you want to share? I want to hear um, your voice. Pretty much everything I was going to talk about has been covered, I think. But 
Yeah. One thing that struck me very early on was, um, I believe Hanno, the Carthaginian who's opposed to the war, is is sort of insinuating that Hasdrubal, um, I guess, got ahead because he was very attractive, and and he was and Hamilcar Barca, Hannibal's father, found him attractive. Hey Scott. Yeah, it's a little fuzzy. So I don't, are, are you on a speakerphone by chance or? No, I'm not. Okay, all right. I'm sorry. Let me. Well, I'm but not. just basically, there's, That's a, better. there's a passage early on where yeah. somebody says that I guess Hasdrubal got ahead because Hamilcar Barca found him very physically attractive, and then there's yeah. an insinuation that Hannibal got ahead because. Has Drubal found him attractive? And I didn't know yeah. if that was just sort of considered normal in those times or if that's Libby yeah. being censorious about the Carthaginians or anybody had a had a view on that. That's a good question, Scott. And I, you know, I don't know if um, Andre or, or Mike or others have a have some sources to point to, but it, it did feel to me reading it that it was Libby uh, Livy's um, bias coming out and sort of the way he constructed that. Well, in his but, sarcasm, because that's where he says uh, to that point, he says specifically that his Drubal had initially attracted Hamilcar's interest, they say, by his youthful good looks and was subsequently invited to become his son-in-law on the basis of other qualities, no doubt Presumably intellectual. intellectual. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the sarcasm is really, really pretty great, really pretty brilliant throughout the book. And is Hanno's speech, like, um, on page five, I mean, it sounds like it's pretty common because he even says... You know, are we going to keep, like, basically letting our young boys be at the bequest of mercy. Yeah. Their, their, their mercy of their, their sexual appetites? Yeah. Is that, who is that speaking? Is that Therese? Nan. Nan. Okay, thank you, Nan. Yes. That, that's yeah, remarkable. I, I don't think a comparison to Alcibiades is, is unfair there. I mean, I think people would would understand that illusion. I think it's the first historical figure you think of, of sort of societal phenom and amazing military talent, who is also found tremendously attractive and spends too much time at night with the men of high society. Mike, some of the people on the call don't know who Alcibiades is. Can you just take a moment? Alcibiades was the sort of like amazing phenom, almost like Rommel of his day, amazing general superstar of Athenian society who led the disastrous expedition to Sicily, which saw most of the Athenian soldiers killed and ultimately led to their downfall and their loss of the Peloponnesian War. And the, the parallel to Hannibal is, is really not that far-fetched in that regard. Yeah, I, that's really important. Uh, again, for those of you who didn't read Thucydides, Mike is talking about the war between Athens and Sparta and an Athenian, as he's saying, named Alcibiades who, by the way, comes up in Plato's Socratic dialogue um, and referring to Alcibiades and Socrates, potentially even as lovers, by the way. But Alcibiades was very smart general. And um, he, after this disastrous expedition to Sicily that Mike talked about, he actually was exiled and, and became a Spartan. And then it, 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 he was sort of going, switching sides and was a... Um, a difficult character 
Um, and I think you're right that Livy is kind of setting that up so that the Roman reader who will have read Thucydides and, and be certainly aware of Alcibiades and the role he played in the downfall of Athens in that war. Um, and that's a great point, Mike. Thank you for adding that. Um, also, I, I wanted to just maybe add, and just yeah. comes up from from reading Plato many name, years ago. So we this, can is Therese. Therese, this is Therese. This is Therese. Um, just from reading Plato many years ago about pederasty and the practice of of the Greek men, uh, an older man to kind of groom a younger man, and it was kind of a a love mentorship relationship. And when I was reading yeah. um, those sections, that to me that was an allusion to that, and maybe it was just kind of a common practice. Uh, there as well. I don't know. I mean, maybe the scholars would have a better idea of that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't know if we know how much that was practiced in Carthaginian society, except possibly through Livy's allusion to a description of it here. Um, but whether that was simply a way to put in the minds of readers Alcibiades in that earlier example and comparing him to Hannibal or whether it's a description of, of, of a cultural practice that was common. I don't know. And we can find out. That's great. Thank you, <laughs> Therese. <laughs> All right, let's see. Dwight Green, I don't think we've heard from you. Am I right? Are you still with us? Okay. How about Andre? I don't think we heard from you in terms of your favorite passage. You've chimed in on some of the questions, but what... Oh, uh, okay. Um, well, I uh, I spent some time, I wanted to read some of it in Latin, so I started at the beginning of 21, which was my second or third attempt in the last few years, and I didn't I didn't get very far, because it's not easy to read, and, but, um, I, you know, the, the part of that, you know, the few chapters I read at the beginning were remarkable, um, and I just wanted to make a quick comment on that. Um, I tried translating it, and it, it does have a lot of symmetry in, in the first few chapters and a lot of references, it seems, or, or resemblance to Herodotus and Thucydides, especially Thucydides. Uh -huh. And so, um, you know, I, I hear what you're saying about sarcasm and Livy's bias, but from what I've seen in the first few chapters is he's, I think, sincerely trying to bring out a an objective account, and he does spread blame around uh, on Roman leaders that don't perform very well and don't take responsibility for their actions, as well as praising those who do. So, um, I that that's what the first few chapters seem to suggest to me that that was his aim. Now, whether he succeeds yeah. in that or not is another story. But um, yeah, Hannibal is vilified as being cruel, but then on the other hand, like almost the next sentence, he's this real savvy genius and that the Romans should really learn from. So I, I'm still wrestling with this, you know, and, and even the original Latin seems to suggest that to me, you know, and, and I, I, that, that's just my, my experience. Yeah. Well, I think both you and Mike, who've, who've read passages here in Latin, I think have made the point that uh, I think is important and helpful to all of us, which is that while Livy has some biases, he certainly, I think it's helpful what you're saying, that he's sincerely trying. Uh, perhaps that comes through more in the Latin than it does in the English translation, or perhaps the introduction where the editor kind of set us up for 
understanding a lot of Livy's biases and faults may have colored our reading. Um, but that's that's great. And, and you know, Andre, keep 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 trying that Latin. <laughs> we we really appreciate that you're doing that. You too, Mike. Um, Alan Davis, have we heard from you tonight? I don't think I I called on you, or we heard from you in this. Yeah. So sorry about that. You were the very first person to call in. So why don't you <laughs> tell us, add to this discussion, either on what build on what someone said, disagree, or share a passage that you particularly liked. Let me let me give you a uh, um, a little segue and a little different approach. Stylistically, uh, I mean, I tried to suffer through the first four books of. Livy and you know, this chapter, Livy is, has great soaring passages and great speeches. But what I found interesting in this chapter is somewhere along the line, he picks up a sense of irony and a sense of humor. And there's a couple of passages that just I, I just cracked up on. Um, Give us an example. Sure. On page five, at the start of chapter yeah. four, uh, when you know, this is talking about Hanno and his uh, you know, talk to the uh, Carthaginians, he ends yeah. and says, a small number, including all the most right-thinking men, agreed with Hanno. But as usual, and here's the fast break, the biggest party <laughs> triumphed over the better. Yes. <laughs> and then, you know, then you get over to page 15, when they, uh, he's talking about the surrender terms Hannibal is offering. And the man says, who's talking about it, and says, um, and when everything is in, the, in that victor's hands, you must not regard what is removed from you as a loss, but consider whatever is left to you as a gift. Yeah. And then on page yeah. 19, beginning of chapter 19, uh, Libby's, I think, sense of irony comes out here, and he says, um, this direct about the formal declaration of war. This direct question yeah. in the formal declaration of war seemed more in keeping with the dignity of the Roman people than in a debate over the legal niceties and treaties. Da 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 da. da. And then he goes on for two paragraphs and discusses all the legal niceties. <laughs> right. I mean, so right. you know, it's just you know, somehow every once in a while, I think the uh, the, the irony that. Uh, Epithiness and Livy just, you know, he has these little, uh, uh, right. little mods that are just very humorous. And it's a very interesting, it breaks up his his terseness just beautifully. I uh, thank you for adding that, Alan. And and let me ask Mike or, or Andre, if you, in the Latin on, in book four, in chapter four here, that's as usual, the bigger party triumphed over the better. How does that read in the Latin? Is that something you guys can take a quick look at and share with us? Is it as, does it, does it have this kind of sense of humor slash? Um, in chapter four, Andre, because he's way better at this than yeah. I am, I'm sure. But I remember looking this passage up when I read it. And this was actually an allusion to the, as I remember it, the Asimates and the Populares, which were the two ah. factions, which would have been a big part of Roman society. And okay. so, oh, sorry, the, um, it wasn't, sorry, it wasn't the popular, the um, Pauci Oxferma Optimus. Uh, so it's, it's going to be the, 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 the few, uh, but, but strongly optimal, op optimus, uh, optimus. Right. Uh, but then right. it's the many, the Pleromaquae. Um, so 
it's not sorry. So it's not popularized, but but this word optimus, uh, there was one of the big factions in Roman society leading up to the end of the Republic, which would have been in the backdrop of Olivia writing the book, would have been the discord between what were called the optimates or the better great citizens of great families and the populares. And so I think there's a part of it which is very funny, but there's also a part of it which would have, like if you said Republicans and Democrats or said, you know, elephants and donkeys or something like that, there's a very heavily politically charged element to that language. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, Are we talking about chapter four, you said? Is that right? Yeah, chapter Uh, four, the beginning of chapter four. Okay. Um, yeah, and so the near and nearly each best man, that's right, the optimates were in agreement with Hanno, um, but as very often happens, the larger part or the majority overcame the better. So, yeah, what kind of comment is that? I was thinking about that, too, and um, maybe that's a little dig at Roman politics. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the bias that we read in, in Livy, for instance, when he criticizes it seems to be criticizing the the corrupt or depraved kind of practices that they had of you know um adopting a younger officer and all this jazz you know um maybe he was also commenting on you know some of those practices that roman uh romans were doing maybe uh, during his time who knows uh, maybe he was just reflecting what the gossip was about Hannibal uh, still going on in, in Rome during his time. He doesn't come out and actually claim, you know, he doesn't actually tell us like historians today would, would be very clear yeah. about that. Um, yeah. I'm not saying he's not biased. I'm just saying that when he throws these kind of things in, especially the, the portents, right? Like at the end of the year, uh, there were all these portents, and he just says, "I got to list them now." An elephant on a roof, and there was a baby that <laughs> talked, and all this stuff, right? And it's right. like, you know, he puts it in there because he feels he's got to include it somehow, and we don't know what to do with it. He doesn't know what to do with it, and it was just there, you know. So we still <laughs> still got to figure out, you know, what what is he? Why does he put it in, and, and why does he make these comments? He did, he well, let me ask you clear. both this question, Andre. And so, uh, what what are the actual words in Latin in this passage? Are they the are they the words that refer to those different Roman factions? Well, they could they could certainly yeah they could certainly um, very easily allude. So, what is, does does he use the word optim the optimus? What's the well, Latin? I will check, but I'm very it's sure. Pauciac ferme optimus is the, the beginning of the line. Okay. okay. So it's the small but great. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it seems hard to believe that that wouldn't immediately call to mind well, those two well, Roman factions, Mike. Especially if you try to read an anti-Caesar interpretation of this. I mean, Caesar yeah. was, and again, I'll, I'd love to be corrected, but like the, Caesar was very much riding a wave of populism. And oh, yeah, the and traditional Roman mores that would have right, exactly. asked for the Republic right. to keep turning right. on in consuls, right. a dig at the populism right. that would Caesar into power could be interpreted here. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. helpful, I think, for everyone on the call to have a little bit of understanding of Roman politics. This isn't, if you haven't read, you know, Cicero or Caesar, you won't uh, necessarily understand this, but Caesar was a popular. He was his he was sort of fighting 
if you will, he saw an opportunity to attempt to represent the broad majority of the Roman population, especially the, the, the veterans of the wars who needed land and also the poor uh, disenfranchised citizens. And that led him into a fight against the Senate, which he was also a senator, but the, most of the senators were not populist. They were quite the opposite. They were looking, they, they owned lots and lots of land and had lots of privilege and wanted to protect that. And so it gets complicated as the Republic is falling apart. The Senate is attempting to, to hold the Republic together, but not so much for necessarily reasons we might consider noble. Uh, and yet, and then Caesar was trying to opportunize off the dissatisfaction and frustration of a lot of the Roman uh, citizens who were not privileged. Um, and that was, you know, that was part of the tension that was occurring as the Republic was falling apart. And for all we know, I mean, Livy lived during the tumultuous times of the Republic just being destroyed by civil war and the beginning of the empire. So I, it's interesting to wonder, actually, when was he writing this book we're reading, this book 21? Was he writing this after the civil wars had been essentially completed, or was he writing it in the midst of that turmoil? Um, we could probably find out, and I would add. So, Alan, I love the comment that you made, and it also, I think, helped us move into this direction of, of understanding that there's maybe this other thing going on here. Um, has anyone not had a chance to speak? Have I called on everybody? Okay. So, you know, we usually go until about 9.15, 9.30, depending on how the discussion is going. Um, so for those of you, again, who are new, thanks for joining us. I hope you, I hope you found this kind of tumultuous conversation nonetheless interesting and enlightening. Uh, oh, Jason, did we hear from you? Jason Happel? Hi, I think I'm here. Yeah. Uh, well, well, I, was, I was just being a little bit shy, but also um, I, have, I, I was thinking about the way we approach texts like this for the first time. So that I'm, I'm, yeah. I don't know much about Roman history, and I'm, I'm kind of, um, this is the first time I've looked into uh, Livy, but I am familiar with um, Machiavelli's discourses on Livy. <laughs> and it it reminds me, you know, of some of the the way he's he's really talking about how to read these old texts. It's a book on republics, and he's saying, you know, this is a there's a lot going on in this work, in Libby's work, and some of the things that we're saying about um, making assumptions about what is, is he in favor of Hannibal or is he degrading Hannibal. I wonder if there's a lot more subtlety happening there. And uh, one of that, the end of that paragraph four that, that we talked about earlier about his vices, that in the, yeah. last, um, the last few, the last sentence of it, or last couple sentences, talk about the combi his combination of virtues and vices um, that Hannibal right. had. Right. And he overlooks nothing needing to be done by someone who was to be a great leader. Um, and he's, I think we see a lot of this in Hannibal's conduct throughout. Of, you know, there are times when he's bribing villages and giving them lots of stuff, and, and times when he's slaughtering everyone. So that theme of kind of going to those extremes, his virtues and his vices, seems to be 
the, the educational purpose here. Um, yeah. And it's kind of fun to, to see, see how it's laid out and how each of us is interpreting it in a different way. Um, because it's not really, you know, it's not, it, it wasn't, you know, the irony and the, um, it, it wasn't clear to me that, that he was being um, entirely negative about Hannibal, that there's a lot to be learned from him. Um, yes. That the Romans could learn a lot. So. Yes, I think, I think that's right. And I think we're pretty much in agreement, I think, yeah. as a group. Uh, Frank, um, you're yeah. one of our veteran readers. Um, why don't you uh, help us close out this evening's discussion? Are there are there themes or issues you'd like to us to reflect on in in the final few minutes here, or anything well, we didn't discuss that you were interested in? No, but I think I think kind of echoing back uh, you know, the point I made earlier, just kind of looking at the personalities, you know, how's you know who's Hannibal and who is he, you know, Scipio's strengths and weaknesses, you know, uh, yeah. Semperonius's strengths and weaknesses. I think you know. The action was great. In fact, I thought the, the read. Frank? Oh, no. Cut out. We have the uh, same problem we had earlier. Are you Are you there, Frank? I'm here. Okay. I, I think kind of looking at the people, you know, is something that you miss with all, the, with all the great action, all the great movement of troops and, and, and you know, crossing the Alps and, and, you know, crossing the Rhone River, et cetera. Yeah. It was the fact that, you know, there's individuals that, that you know, in Libby's, in Libby's I think, um, assessment, make the history. Who's yeah. Hannibal? Who's Scipio? Who's Sempronius? You know, all these different plays that are in there. What are their personalities? What are their strengths and weaknesses? I think maybe kind yeah. of looking at that as you read the book, you know, and, and, and the value judgments that Libby puts on these people and their strengths and weaknesses kind of points to where they're going to go and what's going to happen in the action. I think that's something that, that makes it more as much a piece of literature as well as a piece of history. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can I throw something in real quick? It's Andre. Yeah. Um, who, who mentioned the Machiavelli thing? Was it J- Jason? Or? That was Jason. Yeah. Yeah. Jason. Great comment. And I think that that means a lot because the Roman people and the Roman historians were a lot more political than we we think of as historians should be. The Roman people were more politically active and involved than I think even American citizens are out of necessity. And so just keep that in mind, because I, I really think that's a great point. And I, I would, geez, I'd love to discuss more about that. I'm really interested in Machiavelli's interest in Livy and how they, how they read it. So, you know, we're reading him at more as an historian but he's more than that, you know. He's he's a lot of he's a lot of other things too. So. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He's a certainly he's also a moralist and a and a and a, and a, and a, a, a not a politician, but one interested in in a, a political perspective. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's I great. Can, well, let, let oh, go ahead. I was just going to make one quick comment about the the discourses on Livy by Machiavelli. He's He's, um, and who is that? I'm sorry, I'm still... chapters, um, and it's it's a, it's a kind of way. It, I think he's trying to re-educate the modern Romans about how to read the ancients and look at the the teachings of the ancient political thinkers uh, differently, and as or yeah. ancient historians. And so it's kind of a it, it is a there's some intention in his interpretation of Livy, but. There's also a kind of reminder 
that there's a whole lot going on there. Yeah. I just wanted to mention that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so extra credit for anyone who wants to pick up Machiavelli discourses <laughs> on Libby. <laughs> uh, just and, as an aside, it's available for free downloads <laughs> awesome. in a variety of formats. <laughs> and by the way, we will eventually get to Machiavelli, but it might be 10 years from now. I'm not sure. <laughs> we. We started the reading Odyssey, Pat Wichter and I, because we wanted to read the, you know, the great books of the Western tradition, if you will, over the rest of our lives. And we thought, oh, we'll be able to read these 350 books. And here we are 10 years later, and we're, I don't know, like 20 books in or something. <laughs> so our pace has been a little bit slower than we had originally hoped for, I think. Uh, but we, we have discussed the possibility of some point in the next few years, taking a few years off of work and just doing massive amounts of reading. So if any of you are interested in joining us for such a sabbatical, <laughs> let me know. Um, uh, well, this is, thank you everyone. This is a great kickoff call. I wanna particularly thank the new readers who signed up uh, with, without having uh, really, I think met us, uh, just found us online. I really appreciate the voices uh, and opinions and, and insights that you guys are all adding. Um, and of course, I want to thank the veteran readers for, you know, continuing on this odyssey um, as we read um, another, I think, terrific text. So I will follow up. I have made notes while we've talked about some of these questions that have come up in today's call. And I will try to get answers that I can share with you over email and also perhaps at the beginning of our next call. Um, and I do want to remind you, I'm going to send out a note about this, but I want you, uh, everyone, to introduce yourselves to the group over email. Tell us a little bit about who you are and, uh, and why you're reading this. And, and so far, you know, perhaps add a little bit about your experience with the with the text and uh, and also with tonight's discussion. Um, so so thank you everyone. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thank, thank you, Phil. Thank you. All right. It. Have a great evening. All right. Okay. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. Night. The organizer has disconnected, and this conference will continue for sixty minutes.